On May the 31st of this year, Carolyn and I will celebrate, by God's grace, 47 years of marriage. Now, I know some of you young people out there that were just born as we were leaving. You said, are the Dowdies still alive? God has been very good to us, very faithful. But I also wanted to tell you this morning about another anniversary that we are celebrating this month. We are celebrating the 30th anniversary of when we first came to Grace Bible Church. It was the first Sunday of January of 1992. We had recently moved to Richmond, and somebody told us about this fairly new little church that was beginning called Grace Bible Church. And so the first Sunday of January, we attended here, and it was through just the clear, direct, simple, very practical, expositional teaching of the Word of God and the love of the saints for one another that as we left there that morning, we said, we have to come back here. And we did. We kept coming back, and we kept coming back. We could have never dreamt at that time what all God had in store for us the next 30 years. We just didn't know that. But whether it was the privilege that I had in the beginning of those years to serve as your pastor teacher or or the last 15, 16 years now that we've had serving with the Master's Academy International in Mexico and Latin America, you guys have stood with us over all of this time. The saints here have been a sanctifying force in our lives. You have loved us. You have corrected us. You have supported us and prayed for us and loved us and we cannot describe to you after 30 years of that of what that means to us other than just to say thank you thank you very much for your faithfulness and for your graciousness and for your love and perhaps to give you a little bit more updated report of your recent investments in our lives and ministry a couple even that have happened this month This month, Grace Bible Church purchased 400 handbooks of Christian theology that are just specifically designed for seminary training in Latin America. They've recently been translated into Spanish. They sell at a rate of $30 per copy, $29.95. All you have to do is multiply 400 times $30, and that's a lot of money. But we called the publishers, and they said, well, if you buy 400, we'll give them to you for $13.50. That's still $5,400. That's, that's a lot of money. I think I called Bill or texted Bill or something. Let me talk to the MLT. Anyway, long story short, I think it was within 12 hours, 24 hours. It was very soon that he called back and said, yes, we want to have this investment. And so that's great. These books are just probably in this next coming week or two will be arriving in Mexico City and then a little bit later on in El Salvador. Another thing that you are doing that's starting just this month is you are beginning to support one of the El Salvadoran pastors who is a graduate of the Extension School there and is also pastoring a new little church there called Iglesia Biblica de la Gracia. Translated in English, that's Grace Bible Church. It's just a wonderful testimony. We've left you with some notes. I gave them to Matt last night to to give to you guys, Bill, so that you can get to know their testimony a little bit better, and you're going to see some pictures of them a little bit later on. But thank you for your investment these next five years as you kind of begin to help them get up and going and and better established in this new little work down there in in, uh, El Salvador. 
All of that's not even to speak of the almost $50,000 that you and others have given toward the Tula Project. You've probably heard about the Tula Project, phase one of their new church building down in Tula. Tula's about an hour north of Mexico City. And uh, Asael Hernandez is a graduate of the school there, and now he is uh, finishing up with his, I, I believe his THM at the Master Seminary in California and, and will soon return there. But they're in phase one of their building program, and uh, they still need about $25,000 to complete that. But we are just so overwhelmed by your graciousness in helping to support that work there. So thank you, and God bless you, and God strengthen you, and God continue to use you in his work. Well, let me ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to start reading at verse 17 and read down through chapter 2, verse 5. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. In this section, and I'm sure that all of you are going to remember the previous two sermons that were preached in May and July of 2017, but just in case you don't, you can go online and find them there. I would like to basically pick up with the next paragraph in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, but I've called these series of sermons 
titled them The Foolishness of God. The first one was called The Foolishness of God Seen in the Message of the Gospel. The second one, The Foolishness of God as Seen in the Recipients of the Gospel. And this morning we're going to be looking at the foolishness of God as seen in the messenger of the gospel. And really I would like to expand that out, the messenger and his methods, the messenger and the methods of the gospel. So just a word about this title because obviously we know that there is absolutely not one iota of foolishness in God, right? There is no absurdity in God. There is no unwisdom in God. God has perfect knowledge of how to act wisely so that he will always, always accomplish all of his good pleasure in order to glorify himself. Romans chapter 16 verse 27 says that he is the only wise God. Job says in chapter 12, verse 13, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. So what Paul is doing here in this text is presenting a contrast between the foolishness of men, which they think is wisdom, and the wisdom of God, which they think is foolishness. These two paragraphs present this contrast between God's true wisdom and man's supposed wisdom, between God's supposed foolishness and man's true foolishness. So in this paragraph, we're going to be looking at how that apparent foolishness, this supposed foolishness, carries over to the messenger and his methods of the gospel. Paul really here in verse 1 picks back up. He had in chapter 1 verse 17 we read these words. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He's using first person singular there. And we know that he kind of departs from that in the next two paragraphs. Because he goes to second person and whatnot. But we come back to chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. And he comes back to first person singular. And I, and I, and my, and I, when I came to you brothers. So he's talking about his own role as the apostolic messenger of the testimony of God, of the gospel. And... He says here that God was pleased to save those who believe through the folly or the foolishness of what we preach. He said that back in chapter 1 verse 21. And so the focus is on the the content of what was preached. But notice that Paul says the foolishness of what we preached. He didn't say the foolishness of what we discussed or what we commented on, or what we presented as a one of several possibilities, but rather he said, this is what we preached. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he comes back to that. His focus is the same. So the content of Paul's preaching here, he says, is the testimony of God or the testimony about God. He's referring to the gospel. This is God's testimony. This is God's gospel. This is God's message. This is not man's gospel. This is not man's message. This is the testimony of God. This is his gospel. 
So Paul's message was about what God has done for sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. It is about his gospel. But what does God, what does Paul do with this message? It says, it says he proclaims it. He proclaims it. That's what he says there in verse 1. He preaches it. And this is really the message of the entire New Testament in, in the word of God. The proclamation and the preaching of the gospel. And the reason for the emphasis on preaching and proclaiming lies in the very nature of the message itself. God has taken merciful action to save sinners. And this action is in the life, death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. The testimony of God is the good news of the gospel. And it is this good news that is proclaimed, is heralded, it is preached. See, God is not here negotiating with sinners. He's not bargaining with those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. God isn't maneuvering and bargaining with sinners to somehow try and get the best deal with them. Rather, God is mercifully confronting sinners with their sin and announcing his only provision for their salvation from sin. And he is commanding them to repent. Yes, commanding. I command you, he says, to repent. Before coming to Corinth, Paul had stopped over in Athens. You'll remember that. And we read there that the city was full of idolaters. And he came to these idolaters and he said these words, Now God commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through his son Jesus. I love those words. Now. Not tomorrow. Now God. God commands all men everywhere to repent. So done correctly... Preaching is simply the representation of God's gospel, of God's good news by which sinners come to know him. Many preachers today, even missionaries and some evangelists, avoid describing what they do as preaching. Some of them think that preaching is too arrogant. Others are afraid that it will offend their listeners Others are just flat out fearful that the world thinks that their message is going to be foolish and outdated and old fashioned. And I guess they've never read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 because it is. Because that's the way God designed it. That's the way he made it. So they like to describe what they do as kind of sharing. And they end up sharing these witty little illustration filled humorous stories that are really designed more to entertain But something extremely important is lost if the church stops thinking of its commission from God as preaching and proclaiming the gospel. That is our job. That is what God has called us to do. It is not arrogant to proclaim as forcefully as we can God's gospel to sinners. Rather, we're just being faithful to the call of God to do what he has commanded us to do. Well, Paul also, it says in verse 2, 
centered his preaching on Christ crucified. Let me read that for you again. It says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden Paul shows up in Corinth and he looks around and evaluates the situation and he decides because of the local cultural scene that he is going to preach a different message and use a different method of doing that. That's not what this means at all when he says that I resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Nor does it mean that he disregarded every other doctrine except the cross. What he does mean is that everything he does and teaches is tied to the cross. It goes to the cross. Whether he is talking about spiritual gifts, whether he is talking about church discipline, or the doctrine of God, or the doctrine of Christ, or whether he's talking about suffering and affliction, he starts with the cross and he finishes with the cross. He is cross-centered. He is gospel-centered. And really this describes Paul's ministry commitment. He said, I resolved. This is the way God has designed it to be done, and I resolved to do it this way. So it determines his ministry style, his method, we can say. So if Paul really believes that God disclosed himself in the cross of his son, and of course he does, and that following the crucified and risen Savior means a daily dying to self, and it does then it's preposterous to adopt a style of ministry that is triumphalistic, that is calculated to win human applause and designed to entertain and impress sinners. It's precisely because Paul resolves to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified that he can determine his policy on how he delivers the gospel. The effectiveness of Paul's evangelism was not bound up in some kind of special evangelistic style or unique delivery method that he learned at the evangelistic school. Unlike the popular philosophers of the day running around Greece who were paid to parade their human cleverness across the stage and solicit human praise and applause Paul doesn't even speak of himself. He speaks of Jesus Christ. And particularly of Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. So Paul's preaching, his proclamation, whether it was in a synagogue, whether it was in a private home, whether it was in the public square, it was without pomp. It was without ostentation. It was, it was without highfalutin words. It elicited no public applause, nor was it meant to. Instead, he came to Corinth with a decisively anti-sophistic strategy, we could say. He deliberately avoided the neatly packaged eloquent speeches and the oratorical wit In fact, Paul says that to preach the gospel with human wisdom and eloquence is, in fact, to empty the cross of Christ of its power. It's a complete mismatch, he says, between the message and the medium, the message and the method of delivery. God is saying here that if the content of the gospel is not of human wisdom, and it is not, then neither should the presentation by the messenger be of human methods and style. So instead of responding to God 
himself with deep convictions. You remember that's exactly how the Thessalonians were said to have responded to the preaching of the gospel. That they responded with deep conviction. Instead of doing that, when this wrong style or method of presentation is used, the wrong medium, the wrong form of gospel proclamation, then what happens is we are in danger of superficially assenting to the persuasive power of a speaker's eloquence. A a merely rhetorical, silver-tongued, or psychologically persuasive exercise in evangelism remains spiritually empty if it fails to engage sinners precisely with the message of Christ and Him crucified and risen again. It isn't that Paul doesn't appreciate the clear and engaging communication of the gospel. He certainly does that. That's very clear throughout the New Testament. But the point here that God is telling us is that manipulative rhetoric from the wit and wisdom of man contradicts the very message of a crucified Messiah. This ought to raise questions of whether there are some forms of communication today that are inappropriate for presenting the message of Christ crucified and risen again. And increasing number of churches employ various forms of entertainment media to present the gospel. They even refer to it as entertainment evangelism. Folks, that's an oxymoron. Those two words shouldn't even be used in the same sentence. Because it's using an inappropriate method, an inappropriate medium that unavoidably trivializes or relativizes the very message that they think they're trying to, to convey, resulting in human converts, not divine converts. During the first 17 years of our marriage serving as missionaries, we were primarily involved in the Evangelistic Ministry of Youth and Children. One day we unexpectedly met up with a young man, his name was Robert, who years earlier, quite a few years earlier, had attended one of our neighborhood Bible classes. And we remembered that he had made a profession of faith in Christ at that class, after class one day, and that we had counseled him regarding his understanding of the gospel. So, Having connected all of that, we immediately asked him, took the opportunity to ask him how his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ was going. And he responded to us by looking at us with a blank stare, and he said that he had absolutely no recollection of having professed Christ or knew nothing about a relationship with Christ. It turns out that he was one of our converts, not one of God's converts. That experience caused us to reevaluate our evangelistic techniques and ministry methods. Were we using techniques and methods that involved human persuasion that resulted in professions of faith in Christ that weren't genuine? Were, Where the gospel never really penetrates to the understanding? Where the enemy comes along and snatches away the message from the surface of their understanding? And after literally months, probably years of that kind of introspection, we concluded that, yes, at least in certain areas, we were using methods 
that encourage superficial, if not altogether false professions. They professed Christ, many of them, but they did not possess him in many cases. That experience and others caused a prolonged period of very intensive evaluation before the Lord and his word as it relates to evangelism in general and specifically to children's and youth evangelism in particular. And after that prolonged period of evaluation, it resulted in some major adjustments to our ministry style to eliminate as much as possible human wisdom and carefully devised methods and techniques that promote insincere professions of faith. Now, let me ask you this question, because I know you're asking it in your minds. Is it possible? Can people hear a clear, biblically sound gospel message that is untainted by lofty speech and human wisdom and make a profession of faith that turns out to be spurious? Well, absolutely they can. Jesus talks about it all the time in the gospels. One example of that is the parable of the sower. Children, youth, adults, they can, they do make professions of faith in Christ that at first appear to be genuine. But they remain interested only until there is a sacrifice to pay in following Jesus Christ, in which case they eventually abandon even the pretense of following Christ. It's wise from time to time for us to reevaluate our ministry style and our ministry methods so that they are aligned with what we see in the scripture. Are we using, using lofty speech and human wisdom and human techniques to manipulate and try to control what really is only the work of God? Many churches have become so performance-oriented that it's hard for them to see how compromised they are. The smoothness of the performance of their ministries become more important to them than the fear of God. Polish places substance. Professionalism, showmanship become more valuable than the serious proclamation of what it means to know Christ crucified and Him risen again. So in verse 3, we not only see that Paul worked strenuously to avoid this kind of human wisdom and lofty speech and manipulation, but he faithfully proclaimed the gospel despite his weaknesses and fears and trembling. Look at verse 3, and he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You'll remember that Paul arrived in Corinth after having been beaten and imprisoned in Philippi, And then he went on to Thessalonica and Berea where he was run out of town by these angry mobs. And then he went to Athens where he was scoffed at and mocked at. And that's not even to speak of the human toll that first century travel must have constantly taken on his body. He arrived in Corinth and he was weak and he was fearful at some level and he was trembling. In both of his letters to to the Corinthians... Paul frequently reminds the church that God works through weakness. The subject of his preaching, Jesus Christ crucified, was a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Chapter 3, verse 23. Chapter 1, verse 23. Those whom God saves through the preaching of the gospel were regarded by the world as, as nobodies. They were weak and foolish. Chapter 1, verse 27. And now, at least as far as the world is concerned, the preacher comes off as weak. And trembling and fearful. What? Weak savior? Weak message? Weak Christians? Weak preacher? 
Well, sometimes that's how the world sees it. But that's not how God sees it. God, as a matter of fact, has defined it this way. He has designed it this way. Paul had learned that God's strength and power are most greatly displayed in connection with the messenger's weakness. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you will, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a very well-known passage. Paul's vision, his thorn in the flesh, his appeal repeatedly to God to remove that thorn in the flesh. And you drop down to verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest in me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The weaker the human instrument, the more clearly God's grace shines forth. One commentator, H.R. Weber, captures it well, I believe, when he writes this. He says, it is in the nature of the cross that it cannot be preached elegantly and brilliantly, but only in weakness. Paul knew that when he proclaimed Jesus Christ crucified in his own physical weakness and fear and trembling, that God would display his divine power and wisdom through the clear message of the cross. We might say it this way, Paul, unlike the philosophers and the orators that were so popular in first century Corinth, Paul was stripped of self-reliance by his own weakness, by his own fears, by his own trembling. He was stripped of that kind of self-reliance, of that kind of overconfidence in one's abilities and one's powers, humanly speaking, to manipulate people. In Spanish, there's a popular modismo that goes like this. It just simply says, tiene buena labia. Literally translated is, he has a good lip. But it refers to someone with above normal abilities to say things eloquently. Someone that has a great gift of articulation. Someone that dominates the language. Somebody that has the ability to convince, to persuade, to move people through the gift of the tongue. Tiene buena labia. They have the ability to keep people spellbound in their seats by their ability to command the language and tell stories. But Paul learned through his own weaknesses and his own frailties and his own sufferings and fears and trembling that he has to eschew this kind of lofty speech, this kind of human wisdom, and instead completely cast himself on the mercy and power of God in the gospel. He learned that he was completely, in and of himself, incapable of converting people to Christ, as we like to say today. That didn't mean that he wasn't bold, or clear, or prepared, or persuasive. King Agrippa, if you read Acts chapter 26, you'll be reminded of King Agrippa, how he learned that firsthand. Paul, do you think that really today you're going to convert me? You're going to persuade me to become a Christian? 
So it doesn't mean that Paul wasn't prepared to present the gospel cogently and persuasively or that he was afraid to confront others with their sin and the crucified, risen Christ. But it did mean that in and of himself, Paul the evangelist and the apostle had no personal persuasive power to usher people into God's kingdom. He had no ability to speak in a way that made other people do or believe what he wanted them to do or believe. He had no silver-tongued oratory that caused people to repent and believe the gospel. He learned that only God can do that through his spirit converting sinners as they hear the message of the cross in Christ crucified and risen again. Parents, we do have parents here this morning, don't we? And I know that you already know this, but only God can save your children. You can't. Preacher can't. Youth leader can't. Sunday school teacher can't. Only God can save your children, even your adult prodigal children. You can exhort them. You can cajole them. You can persuade them to make a profession of faith in Christ, to be baptized, to become a member of the church. But only God can genuinely save them. And you need to take refuge in that. You need to hope in that. Because he can do that. When we disavow self-confidence, disavow human persuasion, disavow human manipulation, repudiate human methodologies, and on the other hand, entrust ourselves and our methods and our message to God alone... He most greatly displays his power in the cross of his son who drank the cup of his holy wrath against our sin and provides the only means of salvation from sin that there is. As long as people are impressed by your powerful personality and your impressive gifts, there is very little room for you to impress them with the crucified Savior. God wisely designed that men cannot come to know him through human wisdom. That's what we saw in chapter 1, verse 21. God wisely designed that most men who do come to know him are not the somebodies of the world, but rather mostly the nobodies of the world. We saw that in chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And now we see that God wisely designed that the messengers of the gospel proclaim the cross not with lofty speech of human wisdom, but with the simple, bold clarity of Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again for the salvation of sinners. In verse 4, as he continues this, talking about his methods, we see in verse 4 that Paul strongly avoids manipulating people. He strongly avoids manipulating people in verse 4. If you want to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, he says, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul intentionally refuses to humanly manipulate men. That doesn't mean that he didn't try to persuade them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, he writes, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. And in Luke's narrative that we read earlier in the service this morning, we see that Paul reasoned with the Jews and the Greeks. He tried to persuade them that Jesus was the Messiah. 
He was testifying continually that Jesus was the Christ. He, for a year and a half, he taught the word of God among them. And we see all of those words he persuaded, he reasoned, he testified, he taught. But in all of that, he strenuously avoided any kind of human persuasion and manipulation. He deliberately abstained from sweet-talking people into some kind of an emotional, superficial decision. It's the truth and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen again alone, that converts sinners. It is not the glamour of our oratory. It is not the emotional power of our stories. Paul writes in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel. So Paul was more committed to the integrity of his gospel presentation than he was worried about his statistical numbers and missionary reports. And then finally, in verses 4 and 5 that we've already read, we see that Paul recognized that a cross-centered ministry is characterized by the Spirit's power and it is vindicated and transformed the lives. The persuasive power of Paul's preaching didn't come from the wisdom of men. We see that in verse 5. It did not come from human persuasion, from manipulating arguments, from modulating the voice for maximum response, turning the lights just right and the music just low, and doing all of those kinds of human things for some kind of superficial human momentary response. Paul didn't win people to the gospel because he was a master of the art of public speaking, appealing primarily to people's emotions. Saving faith is not based on how entertaining or how interesting or even how compelling the speaker is. But rather it is on the power of the Spirit of God transforming the hearts of sinners when the gospel message is faithfully proclaimed and preached. That's what Paul is telling us here. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same God who spoke light into the existence of our universe is the same God that must create supernatural light in the human soul, awakening it from its death and transferring that believer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light through the crucified and risen one, his son Jesus. You see, God's power, God's power supplants the preacher's weakness because of God's superior excellence and power. And the proof of that power is not the audience's applause for the preacher's oratorical ability and wit, but rather it is the divinely transformed lives of repentant sinners. I mean, that's, that's exactly what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that we read there, verses 4 and 5. How do we know that you were among the elect of God? Because the gospel was preached among you and God saved you and transformed your lives. That's how we knew that you were among the elect. You remember in Acts chapter 6 and 7, we have that great sermon of Stephen. Many opponents of the gospel, they rose up and they openly disputed with Stephen against his preaching. But in Acts chapter 6 verse 10 it says they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. 
Stephen, yes, Stephen was speaking. He was speaking words. But the people could not withstand his wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking because God was speaking through him in his power. So what did the people do? They repented and were baptized and became members of their local church, right? No. No, they got mad. They kicked them out of the city. And they stoned them to death. That's what they did. Something that we might best begin to get used to in our own culture. As we see that kind of anger against the truth of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon had a remarkable capacity for memorizing and quoting hymns. Toward the end of his life, he was in bad health. He had moved from England to France to try to to help. And in his last days, he gave his last public address to a group of his closest friends. During that address, he said these words. He said, though I have preached Christ crucified for more than 40 years and have led many to my master's feet, I have at this moment no ray of hope but that which comes from what my Lord Jesus has done for guilty men. And then, from memory, of course, he began quoting, I think he was singing as well, quoting, singing one of the verses from the great hymn before the throne of God above that goes like this. It says, behold him there, the bleeding lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. Have you seen him there? Have you seen the crucified one? Do you know the crucified one? Do you know him? By God's power, has his spirit made you alive, transformed you from your spiritual deadness and made you alive in Jesus Christ and given you new life and placed his spirit in you and made you a new person? Because now you count on his perfect spotless righteousness the King of glory and of grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the careful instruction that you've given through the Apostle Paul in his writings. Lord, not just of the content of your gospel, not just of the recipients of your gospel, but Lord, of of the messengers of your gospel and how we are to appropriately convey the message of the gospel, not with manipulative human rhetoric and techniques, but in complete dependence upon you, realizing that only you can save. Father, many of us here today have children who remain unconverted We have friends and family that remain converted. No doubt we have spoken with them, tried to persuade them. And yet, Lord, we realize anew that you are the only one that can save them. And we ask, O God, in your mercy and in your grace that you would do that. That you would bring glory to yourself by showing mercy to sinners. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.